As another Women's History Month draws to a close, this week we're highlighting a few well-behaved women whose contributions have been lost to history in our chat with author Stephanie Dre. In our second half, we'll introduce you to a new mystery series featuring a spunky female lepidopterist. This is Chapter 180 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Cherenkovich, and I'll give you a chance to look up that $10 word before jumping into things. There's a quotation attributed to Susan B. Anthony that goes something like this, where groups of women gather together, failure is impossible. And that's exactly what came to mind as I read The Women of Chateau Lafayette, a sweeping historical drama that brings to light the story of three women whose real-life contributions were overshadowed by the men of their era. I set author Stephanie Dre the tough task of summing up her 500-page novel in just a few words. This is a book about three wars, three women, one world-changing legacy, and the French castle at the heart of it all. I love that. That's perfect. You must have been practicing that. (laughs) It came to me quite late. (laughs) How did you ever stumble upon the story of the Chateau and its women? Well, I had originally been planning to tell a story about Adrienne Lafayette, our French founding mother, the wife of General Lafayette, uh, the revolutionary hero. And it was only after I started researching her and researching the chateau, which was Lafayette's birthplace, that I discovered something that made me very emotional. I realized that it had been used um, as a refuge for Jewish children during the Holocaust. And I had to know how that came to be. And it had come to be because it was purchased by Americans during World War I. An amazing woman named Beatrice Chandler was the moving spirit of that purchase. And once I realized that it was just generation after generation of women basically trying to save the world in the same place in this castle in France, I just couldn't let go of that combined story. Most historical fiction novels focus on maybe one or two significant events in world history. But as you mentioned, you cover three wars. It's a timeline that spans centuries. I can't even imagine the amount of research this novel entailed. Did you ever think at any point that this is just too much? There's no way I'm going to be able to pull this off. Um, Every day. (laughs) (laughs) There were many tears shed. Um, I was very nervous that I would not be able to do justice to the women, and I I felt very strongly that I I wanted to do justice to them. And I think each of them could uh, easily be the subject of a separate book, but the legacy that they all shared was important enough to me to try to make it work. And knock on wood, so far, readers love it. So you have a blend of historical figures as well as fictional figures. And I love this question that came along in your press materials. And I want to ask it because it's such a good question. You have cameos from people like Theodore Roosevelt, Ben Franklin, Marie Antoinette. Was any of them your favorite to have some fun with? Uh, I really enjoyed Ben Franklin. I mean, I knew he was um, a character, but he's funny. And I had a little bit of um, of fun putting in some of his historical jokes into the book. It was the centuries-old jokes, and they still do well today, huh? Yes. <laughs> 
How much of what you discovered in your research actually ended up in your final draft? Oh, gosh, only a very small percentage of it, even though it is a, it's a hefty book. But I write historical sagas, which are typically multi-generational, um, and they are, are often lengthy. But even then, I really only had limited space for each time period. So there's a, a bunch of scenes that hit the cutting room floor. Did you get to travel to the chateau itself? I did. I went in 2017. And um, we started in Paris, and that gave me a very false sense of security because everyone in Paris speaks English. So it was very easy to get around. And then we rented a car and trekked up into the mountains when it occurred to me, oh, we really are in a foreign country, and we don't speak the language, and um, the castle doesn't have a proper address. So I guess we're just going to have to find it with GPS. So it was a bit of an adventure getting there, but oh, it was so rewarding. Lots of hand signals and, and pointing at pictures. <laughs> yes, I think we, we looked sad and downtrodden, and so people very kindly tried to help us. <laughs> there seem to be so many stories of women in history that kind of gotten brushed aside in time. And I know that you've sort of made a point of writing about these women, like the founding mothers of this country in your previous yes. books. Do you think you'll keep writing about these women as you come across them? I would love to. Um, I mean, we have many very accomplished, wonderful stories about men in uh, our country and in the world. But I think women have been a little bit underappreciated for their roles in history. And getting the opportunity to showcase founding mothers is a bit of a calling for me right now. So I'll keep doing it until I run out. Does that mean you have the next one in mind? I do indeed. Um, my next novel will be about um, America's first female cabinet secretary, Frances Perkins, Secretary of Labor. Excellent. I think that's a, a name that people might be surprised to, to hear because I think they may think of somebody, somebody else and not necessarily that particular name. They might. And, you know, I think... People um, often can find the idea of what a founding mother is to the founding generation, but I feel like uh, certainly in the 30s and the New Deal, the country was sort of rebuilt in some ways. So I definitely consider her to be a founding mother, too. I think any woman who paves the way for other women can be a founding mother. Exactly. <laughs> so I want to go back to the book just because the story to me, felt like it was itching for some sort of cinematic adaptation. Uh, any bites so far? Not yet, but from your lips to God's ears or <laughs> Hollywood's ears. I wish I could make that happen for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know those kinds of people, at least not yet. But if you're out there and you're listening, you need to pick up the women of Chateau Lafayette, Stephanie Dre. Thank you so much for spending some time and talking to me today about it. Oh, thank you for having me. I think it's pretty safe to say we all think we know what Victorian-era women were like. Stayed, proper, uptight, although honestly, it could have been those corsets they had to wear. Well, if you're looking for a different type of female character, the mystery-solving butterfly hunter Veronica Speedwell, who forgoes appropriate quote-unquote behavior in order to live the way she wants, is the gal for you. Her latest adventure is chronicled in An Unexpected Peril, and I got to chat with author and creator Deanna Rayborn about her real-life inspiration. This is the sixth book in your Veronica Speedwell mystery series, 
Tell us a little bit about the trouble Veronica and Stoker find themselves in this time. Well, it wouldn't be a Veronica Speedwell mystery if there wasn't trouble of some variety coming to call. Um, This one takes place in an organization that I absolutely love that I've been dying to set a book in. And it's a place called the Curiosity Club. And I created it for the Veronica novels because I love the idea of these, you know, kind of traditional Victorian uh, gentlemen's or explorers clubs, but for women. Uh, This one is solely for women. It is for exceptional women. And they don't just have to be explorers. They can be mathematicians or botanists or explorers and and poets, whatever field that they're into. Um, They just have to be women who are doing really interesting things. And one of these women is a mountaineer. And unfortunately, right before the action of this book opens, she falls to her death during her latest expedition. And it's Veronica and Stoker who go through her effects when they arrive at the club and realize that she has in fact been murdered. I love the made-up little country in Europe that this woman was climbing <laughs> the <Alpen> in. Wall. <laughs> yes, there's like uh, shades of Luxembourg, maybe some of Belgium in there, and the mix of French and German. It's just, it's so funny. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. It was so much fun to create my own country. I mean, because when I started writing the book, I had the option of using an actual mountain in an actual country. So I looked at Switzerland and, I, you know, all the usual places. And I thought, wait a minute. I write fiction. I can do whatever I want. So I decided it would be a lot more fun to create this very, very tiny I mean, literally, it only has one mountain. It's so small kind of country. And give it its own culture. I got to create the flora, the fauna, the folklore, the food, all the big Fs. Uh, I got to create all of those for this little country. Plus, I got to give it a very, very pivotal geographical position so that it becomes a, a political issue as well because this little teeny tiny country is situated between France and this growing German empire uh, that, you know, everybody thinks that with World War One starting as it did right after the reign of Edward Seventh, that, you know, it, it was very much a 20th century phenomenon. But all the way back in the 1880s, people were starting to say, hey, should we be worried about Germany? Um, and certainly the people of the Alpenwald are beginning to worry about Germany. So full disclosure, this is the first Veronica Speedwell book of yours that I've read. And I love that for people like me, there are these little footnotes in like the first chapter or so that <laughs> indicates where I can read the plot line or which book that referenced little plot line comes from so I can go back and read it. I'm so glad you appreciate that. I do that on purpose because... As a reader, I always like to read from book one in a series, but not everybody does that. There are some people who really like to just choose whatever plot line appeals to them and hop on in. And I know that there are times I've accidentally picked up a third or fourth book in a series, but I've been completely spoiled because the writer told me everything that happened in the previous books. So I don't have any reason to go read them now. Um, and I thought, you know what, I'd like to find a little bit of a middle path where readers will know, hey, this thing that I'm a little bit interested in, now I can see where I go find it. But I don't know everything that happened. So I have all the more reason to go want 
to track it down and read about this book. And it just, it was a strategy that I came up with to try to, to keep as many readers happy as possible, <laughs> because not everybody reads like I do and wants to start with book one. And that's totally fine. I, I try really hard to make the Veronica uh, books accessible for folks who are coming in at book three, at book six. You mentioned that people might want to pick up the plot line that appeals to them. But I think in the case of your books, they might pick the cover that appeals to them because these covers are gorgeous. (laughs) They are astonishingly beautiful. And I take zero credit for them. That is 100% the art department at Berkeley. They are, um, these people are an absolute gift. Their work is so beautiful. They hit upon a particular strategy for the Veronica covers when the first book was coming out in paperback. That's when they changed the packaging to this format. And now every book is this just very unique, very distinctive style that they've put together. I mean, the first that that catches your eye, I think, is the really dynamic color. But then there are always these little Easter eggs uh, somewhere on the cover that are little clues and hints as to things that might be happening with the plot. And I think that's just so much fun that they that they take these elements and find a way to work them in. So each cover has kind of a basic formula that they work from, but then it's unique to that book. So Veronica herself, she's spunky and she definitely doesn't live up to how women were expected to act in the 1880s in London or anywhere else for that matter. Is there ever a time when you were writing these books that you thought, oh, I've gone too far. This isn't believable for the time period. No, because Veronica is 100 percent bound in uh, reality. Um, Our perception of Victorian women is not actually consistent with what all Victorian women were doing. We have we think of Victorian women in terms of the stereotype of who they were. And a lot of women were like that, absolutely. But there were a whole lot of women who weren't. Um, I ran across a, a fabulous piece of research just this week talking about um, professions of women that the uh, author of the article had pulled from various uh, census records. And it turns out Almost 3,600 women in England were butchers at this time. Well, that's not a typical Victorian picture that we have in our heads. You know, a woman standing there with a cleaver and a bloody apron. But that was the reality. And the truth was there were a lot of Victorian women who were engaged in um, exploration, in going out and seeing the world and and kind of uh, living a different life to what society expected of them. And those are the women I'm most fascinated by um, because we, you know, we, we all know that that image of this very upright, proper, demure lady, but there were so many women who were fighting against that and, and who understood that they were going to have to pay a price for it socially. It meant that they were not going to make the best marriages sometimes, or it meant that they were not always going to be invited to the best parties. They were not always going to be viewed as respectable and they were they were totally okay with that is it true that veronica herself is based on a real life woman from this time period she's not based on a woman as much as she's inspired by a woman um one of the victorian explorers that i was most fascinated by is a lepidopterist by the name of margaret fountain and lepidoptery is just one of those ten dollar words that means butterfly hunter and margaret Um, hunted butterflies around the world. She uh, traveled to six continents, uh, netting specimens uh, for profit because it was a very good way to make a living. Um, It it was still considered uh, enough 
of a ladylike occupation that she was not completely beyond the pale socially. But Margaret engaged in physical relationships with men as she traveled the world. They were casual, um, some of them. They, some of them were interracial. They were premarital. And that's one of those things that, that seems completely unbelievable if you don't know anything about the period and haven't studied these women. But it's what some women did. And so I was so fascinated by Margaret that uh, I made Veronica a lepidopterist in homage to her because Margaret was just this really kind of live life out loud sort of character. Um, I mean, she died in her 70s on the island of Santo Domingo with her butterfly net in her hand doing what she loved. And I just I thought she was such a a fascinating woman that I kind of wanted to just, you know, give a little wink to her by giving Veronica her her occupation and her a little something of her spirit. The saying that comes to mind, I actually have it on a bumper sticker that's hanging by a magnet on my fridge, is that women who behave rarely make history. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it was Lauren Thatcher Ulrich who came up with that well-behaved women seldom make history. You know, women who who were behaving themselves according to what that meant at the time are not the women who really stand out and resonate with us today. You know, we look at the women who were um, subverting expectations and say, okay, I can relate to that. You know, the, the, um, there were two mountain climbing women who uh, inspired my mountain climber in an unexpected peril. And both of them would climb mountains. And when they got to the top, they would plant their suffragist banners, you know, because they were out there doing things in the name of other women. And I, I'm always fascinated, uh, you know, kind of by these soul sisters of ours who, who's, um, whose spirit is not quite gone. I think I know the answer to this next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> Can we expect more adventures? Absolutely. I'm writing book seven right now. Um, that is the last book of my current contract, and hopefully there will be more after that. I, I love writing Veronica. She's great fun, and my publisher loves her too. And, and readers seem to love her. So um, like it's, it's just a, it's a happy little love fest where Veronica is concerned. I loved reading the book. I want to go back and pick up the, you know, all the other stories that came before. But I also want to ask, has there been any interest on your end for turning this like into something that people could see on the screen? Because it just seems like it would be so much fun. Um, there has been. Uh, we've had uh, a couple of, of offers lately that uh, we didn't pursue because I I really would like to see Veronica in just the right hands. Um, so I'm I I would like a very specific kind of producer to have uh, to have the the charge of this project if if it ever came to that. And I would I would love to. I I think Veronica would suit a streaming platform really well. Uh, so I would I would love to see her you know on on one of those available for binge watching. So you can, you know, sit there and, and pop your popcorn and pour your red wine and see what Veronica gets up to for eight or nine hours of the stretch. And so long as nobody says she's a female Sherlock Holmes, right? She's a woman in her own class. <laughs> <laughs> she is. And she's, you know, she she is a very, very different sort of character. Um, you know, I, I think of... You say Sherlock Holmes to me, and that's very cerebral and very, you know, kind of sitting there doing so much of, of the the uh, cogitation in his brain. And Veronica is much closer to a Kipling mongoose. She's very much go and find out. Uh, she flings herself headlong into danger 
all the time. And that's how her poor sidekick Stoker has gotten nearly drowned. He's been stabbed. He's been shot. We, we abuse him uh, quite unmercifully throughout the course of these books. And it's usually because, you know, Veronica has rushed uh, straight into danger and he follows because he is, um, he is loyal to a fault. Their dynamic is really fun. Thank you. It's a lot of fun to write. I, I have great fun with them. And uh, the characters themselves, you know, you never quite know exactly how far you want to push certain elements of their relationship. And and working it on on paper is just, it's one of the most enjoyable parts of what I do. We've been talking with Deanna Rayburn. The latest Veronica Speedwell mystery is an unexpected peril. Thank you for spending some time with us today to talk about it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time around, we pay homage to the people who make New York City the greatest city in the world. I am not biased at all with author Craig Taylor. Between now and then, feel free to share your thoughts with us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.